If you want to open up your Bibles, we are going to first be in the book of Luke, chapter 5. Today we're going to talk about some fishing stories in the Bible. Luke, chapter 5. How many of you have been fishing before? All right, so this is always interesting. Um, as you're trying to turn, you have to also raise your hand. Uh, how many of you have fished in streams and rivers? Lakes, we've got lake fishing. How about ocean fishing? Have we had some o- ocean fishing? Okay, uh, fewer ocean fishing. Um, what about fishing from the side? Well, most of us have probably fished from the side, right? Fishing from a boat. Anybody fished on a boat before? Um, uh, any, any unusual types of fishing? Anybody done net fishing before? Spear fishing? Dynamite fishing? No, we've been basically, so everybody's been casting. Any fly fishing? Anybody done fly fishing? Fewer, not, not that many. Only a couple of people do, have done fly fishing. Um, I, I think I would like to try fly fishing, but I think I would get easily frustrated and uh, um, create a lot of knots. I just have a feeling that's how that would go for me. We're going to talk about fishing today, and uh, I want to sort of set the, set the stage. First, let's set the soundscape We're going to add a little bit of a backdrop to our story here today. I hope you use the restroom before worship. Um, Now think, think for a second. These stories that we're going to look at today both happen on the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is in Galilee, the northern part of Israel, sort of sectioned off with, with Samaria from the rest of Israel. It's the place where Jesus spent a lot of his time This actual Sea of Galilee called many different things, called the the Lake Gennesaret, and also the Sea of Tiberias, as well as called sometimes the Sea of Galilee, is about 64 square miles. It's about 13 times the size of Lake Arthur up at Moraine State Park, if you've been there. Um, Much smaller than Lake Erie, though. Roughly, it's it's about the size of Washington, D.C. proper, the Sea of Galilee. So if you go up on the hills, you can probably see across it um, but but you, 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 it's still a pretty good size sea. Pretty deep, but 141 feet at its deepest. It's very, very low also. Um, one of the lowest seas, uh, lowest bodies of waters below sea level. The Dead Sea being the other one. And the Jordan River flows from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. So it's flowing downhill, if that makes sense to you. And the Sea of Galilee sort of naturally makes a bowl. Um, there's mountains around it, and it's, it's a lot lower than everything else around it. And so uh, it can do interesting things with the wind, because sometimes there's not much wind. Other times the wind can kind of come crashing down, and you'll get sudden storms on the Sea of Galilee, which happens quite a lot to Jesus and his disciples. And so imagine, hear the waves, hear the wind a little bit, and imagine you're on the Sea of Galilee, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing, this is Jesus, by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had got out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. 
And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. The disciples, many of them, at least about seven of the twelve, were fishermen by trade. Fishermen were not poor. That was a pretty good living because a lot of the economy around there depended on fish and fish could be kept pretty well for transport to other areas. So these are fishermen. They're dirty. They're smelly. They spend a lot of time on the boats. They're they're probably pretty coarse in their language. But they make a pretty good living. Fishing, though, was not anything like what we think of fishing today. There's no fishing poles at this time on the Sea of Galilee. There's no fishing line. There's no hook. There's no tackle box. You go out in a boat and you typically have some sort of net, right? And we know from this story that's how they were fishing because they were cleaning their nets at the time. And so some nets were smaller, others were larger, but generally one person would have to throw the net. Very physical job. You might have, uh, in some cases, wrapped it around your arm so that it would stay together and it would have weights on it. And then when you would throw it, it would expand. And if you were good, it would expand. And then it would sink down to the bottom, capturing the fish. And then you would have to either draw with a rope that net back up. And what it would do is the weights would stay at the bottom and then sort of come together. And the fish would be sort of trapped in that net. Or there were other ways to do it. You might, instead of pulling the fish up, you might drag the fish to the shallows. Or you might have a larger net where you and another boat, a partner boat, would drop your net in. And then you could head both of you towards the shore and capture the fish inside. Very hard, very, very much manual labor. It's hot there in the sun. It gets probably pretty cool at night. Um, you have to know where the fish are. These people are fishermen by trade, which means they probably fished with their father, who fished with their father before them. They know these waters well. You can imagine their sunburned, callous hands, the smell of fish that would never seem to leave them, The smell of sweaty men on this boat for hours and hours at a time. I wanted to make this really multi-sensory and try to add some smells to the sanctuary today. But my wife thought if I opened up a a couple cans of tuna, it might really make people sick. So we didn't add smell. But you can imagine, this is not the best smelling place in the world, this sea. You can hear the waves. And this is a big enough lake where there would have been some waves and sometimes even some strong waves, but but not enough that you wouldn't also get pools of stagnant water. The fish should have been in the deep part. I mean, if if you understand fish, 
especially here where there's not a lot of cover, what they would do is in the sunlight, they would go out. That's why you fish early, early, early in the morning, because they're more likely to be biting then. And in the sun, they tend to make for shade. So if you can fish during the day, you've got to fish somewhere where there's shade. In a sea this big, though, they would have headed to the deep water. They shouldn't be there. There's a reason why the fishermen are not fishing at this time. But this random guy comes teaching and uses the boat as sort of the first sound system, right? He's got all these people around him. How do you speak to them? You've got to get some distance from them because everybody wants to talk to you and presses in on you. So he goes out and gets in the boat and goes a little bit away from the people and speaks loudly to them on the shore. And the way the Sea of Galilee is with the hill, you would almost have an auditorium, right? If it was at all hilly, people could be on the hill. And if you got out away from them, it would be like stadium seating. And so Jesus goes out and begins to speak. And after he's done, he tells these fishermen to let down their nets. Now, first of all, the fishermen aren't fishing then because the fish aren't supposed to be there. Second of all, if you follow along in the story, they've already cleaned their nets. They're done for the day. They don't want to fish anymore. If they go to catch more fish, what are they going to have to do? Clean the nets again. But for some reason, Peter and the others that are in the boat do what this strange man says, and they drop the net. And amazingly, it is full of fish. And they're shocked. It doesn't, make, it doesn't seem like that big a deal to us. Of course, the fishermen drop their nets and they catch fish. But for these fishermen, they're so amazed that they confess something to Jesus. Peter, Peter astonishingly says, stay away from me, I'm a sinner. Because he caught fish where he wasn't supposed to catch fish. And he was a fisherman that should have known where the fish were. And Jesus says this amazing thing to him. From now on, you are going to be fishers of people. Or many of you will remember it from your Sunday school days that we are to be fishers of men. This scripture became such a strong part of the early church that the fish became the symbol of the early church. Not the cross. The cross is a little bit later symbol. But what what they would do in a lot of their graves is they would make the ichthus. You probably have seen this fish before, right? It's a real simple line that comes around and then back up. Kind of like an eight with part of it chopped off. That was the ichthus, the symbol of the fish. And in persecution, when when the early church was in persecution, what they would do to meet another Christian is they would do this. They would come up to the Christian. If they wanted to know if they were a Christian, they would draw the ichthus in the sand. And then if the other person drew an ichthus, you could be assured that this person was a Christian. And then you could move the ichthus. You could brush it out of the dirt. And that way they wouldn't know who you were. This symbol becomes the symbol of the early church. We are fishers of men. That is who we are. Fishers of men. We have a much more scary word for that now. We call it evangelism. Isn't that kind of a scary word? Can we all admit that the way the church has talked about evangelism? I'm a pastor and I'm going to admit to you right now. I don't even like how we talk about evangelism. This idea, we we have this, at worst, visions of someone standing on the street corner yelling and pointing their Bible at sinners that drive by. Or maybe even worse, knocking on someone's door and asking them if they died today where they would be. Now there are certain people that have a gift of evangelism and they can have those conversations naturally. But let's be honest, a lot of us don't have that gift. And it's uncomfortable for us as well as for other people. It's intimidating. 
Even for me as a pastor, I find it uncomfortable and I don't know what words I would even say. There's all those verses that are the Romans road, but unless I have my Bible, it's a little hard to remember. I can try to draw something in my, on a napkin or something to try to explain Jesus to them. But it just seems uncomfortable and unnatural. Right today, it's not popular to be an evangelist. In fact, it's more popular to say that all faiths basically lead to the same place. And so we shouldn't try to have evangelism at all. I do not think the Bible lets us off that simply. But I also don't quite know what to do with evangelism. Let's set that story aside And let's set those concerns about evangelism aside and go to another fishing story. This one found in John 21. I encourage you to to, uh, turn your Bibles there. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has already appeared to the disciples a couple of times. It's going to be labeled as the third appearance in in John's understanding. The disciples are still kind of lost. They... They have seen Jesus, they know that he is alive, but they're still not sure what to do with him. So John 21, hear the waves again as we're on that same sea. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Same sea, different name. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Do they feel like failures that night? Failures not just because they can't fight, they can't fish for fish. But remembering that they all, in their own way, have denied and abandoned Jesus at his crucifixion. Maybe they go back to fishing just because it's what they know. Maybe they go back just to find the comfort of being on the water again. Maybe they don't know where they're going to go from here. But isn't it unfortunate that these guys who have for three years followed Jesus go back to what they used to do for a living and they fish all night and a whole boat of fishermen fishing all night on the same lake, the same sea that they used to fish on all the time. They probably grew up on that sea and they catch nothing all night. They must have felt like failures. But just as day was breaking... Not a lot of sounds on that sea except for the waves lapping against the side of the boat. Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Ouch, that kind of stung, right? They answered him, no. He said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in. Because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So in the quiet of the morning, Jesus calls out to them, Children, do you have any fish? 
Children is an endearing term, but not one you probably typically used for a boat full of fishermen. Do you have any fish? No, the truth is we don't. And so he says, put your nets out on the side of the boat, just the same as when he had called them the first time. And they can't even get the fish onto the boat. John recognizes Jesus. It says to Peter, there's the Lord. And Peter dives in. Just like they did, by the way, at the resurrection when they go to the tomb. John gets there first and looks, but it's Peter that goes running in. I wonder why John adds these words about Peter putting on his clothes. Most don't say what I said, stripped for work. A lot of them say naked. Now it's interesting, why is Peter fishing naked? And why, if he's going to swim, does he put his coat back on? And scholars debate about this Um, because that's what scholars do. I wonder if the idea of being naked isn't as much a physical sense as it's a reference back to the Garden of Eden. John does this a lot, referencing John. That he feels naked. He feels ashamed for betraying. He feels like he needs to cover himself up to go see his Lord. And he swims the hundred yards to shore with his coat on so that he can feel somewhat clothed in front of Jesus. After all, Jesus had been with them for three years. They'd been fishing together before. Um, Jesus had seen him in his, in his loincloth. He had seen him dressed down for fishing. But for some reason, he feels ashamed this time. Peter doesn't even help with the fish. Did you catch that detail? Uh, you all take care of the fish. I'm swimming. I'm going to Jesus. That's Peter's way right there. When they got to land, when they got out on land... They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to, me, said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore. Finally, Peter comes and helps. Full of large fish, 153 of them. And altogether, they were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The disciples show up and Jesus already has bread and fish out. Isn't it interesting? Did you ever think about this? Where did Jesus get his fish? He doesn't need their fish. Although when they get there, he invites their fish. He's got his own fish. He's already got fish. Somehow. Now, there's this very interesting detail about 153 fish. There's a lot of debate as to why the specific number 153 is used. Is it just because they were fishermen and they cared about a detail like that? Then why didn't they do it in the earlier story? There's no exact number there when this happens before. Scholars do not agree on this. um, But there's one viewpoint I find sort of interesting and compelling. It's noted that people in those days thought that there were about 153 different kinds of fish. Total. There were a lot of fish they couldn't see because they were deep water, they were catfish, or they were in different parts of the world, but they assumed that there were about 153, some said 156 different types of fish. If so, this is a number of completion. It's not just any number. It's the number of all the different kinds of fish. It's also interesting to note 
that never in the, in the whole Bible did the disciples catch fish without Jesus' help. Never. Whenever they need fish, they got to find it or he's got to help them get it. These fishermen don't seem to be able to fish without him. See, I believe this has huge implications for how we think about evangelism today. I think that we think about evangelism the same way we think about fishing. One person, one line, one hook to try to draw them in. Really, it's kind of manipulative almost to reel someone in. And we do it ourselves. It's up to us to try to share the, the, Jesus with somebody else. But I wonder if evangelism really needs to look more like this. Fishing corporately. Us throwing out our nets and being more welcoming than hooking. Bringing people in rather than trying to reel them in. Where God does the work. And it's not all up to us. See, what I think is going on in this text is the disciples feel like total failures. We can't be fishers of men anymore. We have lost. We have messed up with Jesus. And what Jesus is really doing in this text is he's putting them back. He's reinstating them. In fact, when he goes to the beach, he's going to bow to, if you keep reading, he has a conversation with Peter where he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And he's undoing Peter's denial. But I wonder if even in the fish story, he's already beginning to do that for all the disciples. To say, no, your job is still to be fishers of people. But you're just going to have to do it with my help. And you may have messed it up, but I'm still going to, lose, to use you. George Hunter, who teaches evangelism at Asbury College and Seminary, says that 30 years ago it probably took five significant encounters with a Christian or a conversation with Jesus for someone to accept Jesus personally in their lives. Today, he says, it, it takes a minimum of 12 to 20. Our evangelism has assumed that we're number 20. But what if, as Christians, we're constantly trying to get people in? Constantly trying to point out to them where Jesus is already at work in their lives. I love how my teacher, Len Sweet, talks about it in his book, uh, of the same name. He says we need to nudge people. That what we do is we bump people. As we walk through our lives and somebody's going through a hard time, we care for them and we nudge them. We kind of hip check and bump them a little closer to Jesus. Somebody's going through a difficult loss and we come beside them and we, we kind of bump them with our shoulder. And we remind them through our prayer and through our care that they need Jesus. Maybe we're constantly nudging. And maybe we're not always going to be number 20. Maybe we're just number three in somebody's life. And maybe that's just as important to be an evangelist and be a fisher of men as number 20 must be. Jesus doesn't need us to catch fish. He can catch fish on his own. But he uses us anyway. Let us pick up our nets and let us be fishers and nudgers of men. Let us pray. Lord, we have made mistakes. We have struggled at times to know who we are and what we should do. Bless us, we pray, with the gift of nudging. Lord, don't let us be intimidated by sharing our faith. But let us just be so much a part, let it be so much a part of who we are and how we see the world that we are constantly ready to nudge and bump people towards you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.